Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. So, as Catherine said, I'm uh, Executive Director of the Royal Statistical Society. The RSS is a body just down the road. Uh, we have 6,000 statistician members all from all around the world, and uh, we're there to promote statistics to be used in the public interest. So that's what we're about. And today's topic, obviously, is sort of a natural part of uh, our day-to-day work. So let me start off by saying that UK stats are pretty trustworthy. Uh, they're, they're well developed, there's lots of things in place to guard against ministers and others interfering in their production and dissemination. Uh, abuses do happen from time to time, as you might expect. Uh, and today's session is to kind of give you a magical mystery tour of some of those and how that might happen and what we might do about it. I should start by saying that uh, abuses do happen across all political parties, but the governing party, in a sense, has the most power, and so those abuses tend to be the most important. So I will be picking examples from a variety of places, but uh, you will find the governing party tends to get picked on the most. Uh, that's not because of any particular political bias. If it were a different government, if it were a Labour government, I'd still be picking on the Labour government. So uh, that's just sort of by way of preface. So uh, how, how, if you were a politician, how would I recommend that you lie with data? So the first thing you should do is ignore official statistics entirely. Uh, so let me give you an example of that. Uh, in October 2011, a couple of Labour MPs uh, stood up at Prime Minister's Questions and they said, uh, knife crime, uh, 40% of it was being committed by under-18-year-olds. Now, this was a really hot topic at the time because uh, knife crime was being reviewed uh, and the sentencing for that was being reviewed. Uh, and at the time, uh, 16 and 17 year olds were exempt from mandatory custodial sentences. After this period, uh, that got changed. Uh, and you know, the intervention at Prime, Minister, Prime Minister's Questions Time was important in that, although part of a wider sort of discussion, the press had picked up on this uh, statistic as well. And if you drill down to the data, Actually, uh, it's not true. About 20% of uh, knife crimes are uh, committed by uh, teenagers. So where did this double figure come from? If you track it back, uh, first of all, it was in the press. If you go back to the press, it was in a letter. If you go back through the letter, the letter says, uh, our borough commander estimates that in his little area, uh, 40% of blah, 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 blah. So the best thing to do if you want to, you know, line the data is ignore the kind of national sample, which is kind of carefully thought through, uh, which says 20%, and pick up on what some bloke said in a pub, <laughs> and use that in Prime Minister's question time, and that has a potential influence in changing policy, uh, amongst other things. So that's your first lesson. The second lesson is be selective about the period within which you look at and which you compare your data to. So uh, back in June 2012, Grant Shapps, who was housing minister at the time, said the following. Far from the predictions of the doom merchants, today's figures show work has started on over 15,000 new affordable homes since last September, a massive increase on the previous six-month period. That is clear evidence that our efforts to get Britain building are starting to yield impressive results. Now, what he says about the numbers are true, uh, in that uh, about 15,000 new homes were started on during that six-month period. But house building uh, starts are seasonal. 
So he's picked on October to March and compared it with the previous six months, but naturally uh, that second six-month period always has more house-building starts than the, the first six months. So the right comparison is October to March the previous year. And if you did that, which Mark Easton from the BBC did, you'll find it was a 68% drop, <laughs> uh, which is not the message the minister was telling us. Uh, so it had gone from sort of somewhere between 30 and 35,000 to 15,000. And there are all sorts of reasons why this might have happened, and policy was changing, this was a new program that the government had introduced, etc., etc. So I'm not using the status to criticise the government's house-building program, but what the minister said did not really convey the truth of what was going on uh, in, in that instance. So that's kind of the second lesson. Be selective in uh, you know, the data that you use, the period that you use, and what you compare it with. By the end of this, you'll all be able to be <laughs> The third uh, lesson about how to live with data is claim causation where there is none. So last week, uh, the Liberal Democrats had an advert on their Facebook page saying, Liberal Democrats have doubled the amount of electricity from offshore wind. Now, if you dig into the data, it does show that offshore wind generation has doubled from about 0.8% in 2010 to about 2% in 2012. So that the numbers are correct, uh, broadly. But the question is, can they take the credit? Uh, and I suppose the question to you as the audience is, how long does it take to set up a wind farm? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the wind farm in Lincolnshire, uh, which was operational from 2012, the, uh, they got the, the lease granted for it in 2003. Uh, the government approval for it was in 2008, and building started in 2010. So actually taking the credit for most of this stuff, actually most of it happened under the previous government, just because there's a lag effect, as it were. So, uh, yeah, claim causation where there is none, I think, is a, a sort of standard rule in how to lie with data. And then a fourth uh, sort of way of doing it is to include irrelevant data. So in Duncan Smith, uh, and you get to know him as a serial offender, in this, uh, <laughs> said that... Uh, the following sentiment thousands have surged to claim disability living allowance uh, before it's replaced by a new payment which has a kind of health check so uh, this was earlier in the year when they were replacing disability living allowance with a new claim where you would probably face a kind of face to face assessment as it were and some figures he touted uh, to sort of back this up with in the north west uh, we've moved from 4,000 100 claims. We've had 4,100 claims this year, compared to which is more than double the 1,800 last year. And in the northeast, it was 1,700 last year. It's 2,600 this year. Seems pretty convincing. But if you go back to the original figures, which were compiled by his department, the Department for Work and Pensions, uh, what it looks at is the total change in caseload that they had. So they did have 4,001. Uh, sorry, they did have 1,800 last year in the north. West, and now it's 4,100. Uh, but if you, those figures include pensioners and children uh, who the disability living allowance change didn't impact on at all. If you strip those numbers out, actually the claims fell during the period as opposed to rose. Uh, now, again, we're not saying that tells you anything because uh, there's variation in these figures, which is just sort of happens over time, as it were. But what we are saying is that that doesn't t tell you what he thinks it was telling you. Uh, so, including ir irrelevant data is quite helpful, I think, if you want to make these sorts of claims. 
And I suppose interesting question about how did he get there because the, the DWP data was actually the right data that was on the website. So I think this is a sort of theme that the statistics behind some of this stuff is generally pretty sound, but how it's then used, interpreted, or misused is, is the issue at hand. And then the final uh, tip I'd give you uh, is if, if all else fails, just say what you believe. <laughs> and it's Ian Duncan Smith again. Uh, and earlier this year, he said, we've seen 8,000 people who would have been affected by the cap. This is the benefits cap that had just been brought in by the government. We've seen 8,000 people who would have been affected by the cap move into jobs. This clearly demonstrates that the cap is having the desired impact. Now, <coughs> if you uh, look at the data, uh, I mean, people move on and off benefits all the time. And uh, his department specifically issued research which said, this does not tell you the additional number of people that have moved off benefits as a result of the, the cap. This is just the number that have moved off the cap. I mean, this was such an egregious uh, use of the data, and it got picked up by the press and uh, all sorts of things, uh, that it was slapped down by something called the UK Statistics Authority. So this is our kind of statistics watchdog, which doesn't intervene very often in public debate, so when it does, you kind of know something pretty serious is going on. But uh, and this is where I think the sort of say what you believe comes, uh, sort of takes place. Uh, Ian Duncan Smith on Radio 4 the following day uh, was being challenged on all of this, and he said, uh, yes, they did say that I couldn't prove that uh, X caused Y, but, and I quote, by the way, you can't disprove it either. <laughs> I believe this to be right, he said. Uh, so, well, I mean, you know, once you get to that stage, there's really very little you can do. Right? <laughs> if it just becomes about belief, then uh, it, it, you're in tricky space. So that was my kind of quick overview of some of the ways in which you can lie with data if you want to. Uh, I want to spend the sort of second part of the talk just saying a few things about what we might do about it. Um, so... I suppose, on the one hand, there's something around democratic oversight. Um, I talked about the UK Statistics Authority. Uh, this is a really important body. Most of the work it does is stuff that uh, pretty much everybody except me and my colleagues at the RSS would find dumb. You know, they're kind of busy looking at the way that statistics are compiled. How is inflation compiled? Is it right? Uh, have we taken into account sort of the latest changes that are going on in the world economy, etc., etc.? You don't need to be doing it because they're doing it. So, you know, 95% of their work is just sort of assurance around statistics. Uh, but every now and again, uh, they will intervene uh, in public debate, especially when politicians overstep the mark, sometimes when the media oversteps the mark as well. So that's when you might occasionally hear of them. So they are a really important body, uh, and they are accountable to Parliament, not to the government. So I, I suppose I would say that they're a really important part of our kind of democratic infrastructure. And you know, one of my views is that it can't be up to us as individuals to try and troubleshoot all of these abuses of statistics. I mean, the bits that I talked to you through, it would take you some hours of work sitting at a computer and actually kind of understanding what's sitting behind the data, is what they were saying right or not, uh, and you just don't have the time to do that. So having the UK Statistics Authority there as a sort of safeguard is very, very important. But there are other bodies as well. I mean, the press, uh, they uh, sometimes can be a problem when it comes to s statistics, as we all know. You know, today's 
uh, bacon cures cancer kind of headline, or I mean, those, those sorts of things are always kind of endemic. But at the same time, we're seeing more and more data journalism, really high quality journalists who are sort of going after and, and probing claims. And so, uh, you know, they play a very important role in my view. And we're increasingly seeing more bloggers, tweeters doing the same as well, and sort of taking action on our behalves. And it's worth mentioning one group in particular, uh, which is a, a civil society organisation called Full Fact. Uh, people heard of Full Fact? Anybody? Smattering. Well, I recommend all of you look on their website after this talk. Uh, they are a fact-checking organisation, so every day, uh, I mean, they'll run sort of about half a dozen or a dozen fact checks about some of the big things that were claimed in newspapers or by politicians, and they're completely impartial. And again, they do the fact-checking so that you don't have to. And in fact, several of the examples I've provided you with, you with today have come from full fact. So, you know, I, I think this idea sometimes that we as a citizenship have to sort of solve every square you know, it's beyond us individually, but collectively, if we come together through institutions, either at the parliamentary level or through NGOs, some of this can be corrected. So... That's a kind of more defensive thing of how do we stop the abuses, but actually I think that there's a much more positive agenda, which is what I want to kind of end my talk on, which is, all right, there are these limited instances of politicians making things up with data, but actually for me, the bigger problem is that a lot of government policy is just not very informed by data. Uh, and that's a, kind of, that's a very different sort of issue, really. It's not, it's not about the few people kind of going out and just misusing the data. It's just... Nobody's very interested in the data. They kind of just decided because of the press headline that X needed acting on and Y seemed like a fairly good idea as a way of solving it. But we as taxpayers don't know if that was the sort of best way of doing it. So I think the big prize in all of this is how do we move towards a more evidence-based policymaking uh, sort of society? And that's something that the Royal Statistical Society kind of sees as, as a core of its mission, really. So some ideas for how we might move towards that. One is it would be very useful if every time a new policy was uh, announced, the underlying evidence base for it was published so that we could look at it and go, oh, that's interesting. We know a lot about it, or we don't. And I'm not saying that, I, I'm not saying that politicians always have to make decisions on the basis of evidence. I mean, politicians have the right to overrule the evidence, but it'd be nice if they knew what it was to start with, I think. Um, the role of parliaments and select committees. Some select committees are becoming more powerful, Margaret Hodge, uh, Bernard Jenkins, some of these names of MPs you might have heard, are running uh, select committees and actually using that to probe what's going on in government. And I think that's a really positive thing. That's a sign of kind of vitality in our democracy. At a very different, slightly more technocratic level, uh, this government, uh, possibly to your surprise given some of the abuses you've heard, has invested uh, quite a bit of money in something called the What Works Centres. And these are um, four or five centres of uh, sort of bringing together academia and policymakers to say what are the key uh, policy questions we need answering and then what does the data tell us. And this is a relatively new initiative. Uh, it's happening in, I think, um, it's areas of ageing, uh, local economic growth, crime, uh, early intervention, and a couple of others, I think. Um, but that seems to me to be a really good legacy because actually... One of the issues that we all know is that when politicians have a problem because a headline is screaming, you must take action, they don't have a lot of time at that stage to gather the evidence. But if somebody was gathering the evidence all the way along, then at that point they can say, right, what do we know? And at that point make a useful decision. So 
I think that sort of longer term investment in the evidence is really positive. And uh, another kind of processing is just an evaluation, a kind of culture of evaluation in government. Every time we do something, we should be evaluating it and saying, did that work or did it not? And that partly requires a much more a kind of public appetite for policy failure. Because we want ministers to be able to say, we tried X, didn't really work, so now we're going to try Y. And at the moment, our press uh, and the public don't really allow people to make mistakes at that sort of level. So uh, I think thought a more thoughtful policy-making process is, is very, very important. And then the final thing I think we need is greater statistical literacy. Uh, now, we uh, conducted an experiment a couple of years ago. We asked MPs, what was the probability of getting two heads in a row if you uh, tossed a coin twice? And three-fifths of them didn't get the right answer. Uh, now, these are the people who are kind of running our country. And, uh, but th those numbers are fairly in line with the population. Uh, if you look at all of the, the kind of research on maths and quantitative skills, the UK is pretty much at the bottom of the league table in all of these areas. So we as a country are quite far behind. Uh, and so we think data skills, literacy skills, are really critical for us as a population, uh, but for people who make policy, for our MPs, uh, and others. So we at the RSS <coughs> have a campaign called Get Stats, which is about promoting statistical literacy. We work with journalists. Well, over the last couple of years, we've trained over 500 journalists and student journalists on uh, sort of basic statistical literacy. Uh, but I think as a populace, we're going to have to get better and better at handling data. So I think that's a really critical area. And just a, a kind of final thing on this, that you know, if you think you're better than the politicians, uh, we did some research earlier this year with Ipsos Mori, uh, which we call the perils of perception. And we asked uh, Ipsos Mori to look at where public perceptions are out of kilter with the data. And just to give you a few examples, uh, the public uh, at large thinks that £24 out of every 100 claimed in benefits goes, is, is fraudulently claimed. Now, the data indicates it's something like 70 pence in, in, in every £100. Uh, crime, 58% of the public think that crime is not falling, whereas all the data is showing and has shown for the last 20 years that crime has been falling. So uh, if you compare today's crime rates to about 1995, it's dropped by more than half. Uh, and that's just been a very, very steady pattern. Um, teenage pregnancy, if you ask the public uh, how many girls under the age of 16 do you think are, are pregnant, uh, they say 15%. Uh, the answer is 0.6%. Uh, overseas aid, uh, if, you ask the if you ask the public what would Overseas aid, would you say that's one of sort of government's two or three top expenditure items that they would pick that? 26% uh, of people think that it is, even though it only represents 1% of government spend. More people think that overseas aid is a, is a big item of expenditure than pensions, which is 10 times as high or more. So our perceptions uh, are not always in kilter with the evidence. Now, there's obviously a relationship between what the politicians tell us what the press tells us and our own perceptions. Um, but we as citizens also need to become more statistically literate, more aware of what's going on uh, and what the sort of underlying state of our country is. So, to conclude, uh, we do live in a system where our stats are pretty good, the official statistics are pretty trustworthy. Uh, I think politicians do have the right to use the best data they have to support the case for what they're making, but there are instances where they overstep 
doing that, which I think is a legitimate activity, into downright inaccuracy and perhaps even more at, at, at times. So, um, you know, and the examples I've used have come, a lot of them have come from the current government, not all of them, but um, I think that any governing party suffers from these issues and because they're the ones in power, they're the ones to be analysed. Um, we do have some structures in place to, to challenge some of these abuses. Uh, you know, the UK Statistics Authority, the Stats Watchdog, uh, our own civil society and NGOs. But this kind of lying with data does create a mistrust in politics, uh, which is bound up with all the wider issues we've seen around MPs' expenses, etc., etc. So, you know, I think it's quite corrosive, uh, and it can warp public perceptions. Of, uh, I've given you some data around that as well. So, but for me, the bigger prize is, you know, I think that the issue of politicians lying, explicitly lying with data or kind of misusing data is, is a more minor issue when compared with the actual issue of not thinking about the data when developing policies. So that's the big prize for me. How do we get more evidence-based policy in our society? Thank you very much. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.